0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay, I just want to see if there's any questions left over from the last session before we move on. And and I'll kind of move on a bit further. Oh, yes, I'm forgetting to put it on now, aren't I? (laughs) I can blame this on tiredness. (laughs) My question was, I see emptiness lurking uh, in there uh, and wondering if uh, tomorrow or the next day you may, you're may you going to talk about that and if you're going to talk any about karma. I hadn't scheduled to talk about emptiness, but I can talk about emptiness. Um, it's it's a fairly simple idea in many ways, or a simple concept. Uh, it's there in the early texts. It's not something that gets invented by Mahayana Buddhism, so yes, if you like, I can talk a little bit about tomorrow because in a sense where I'm going, which is to talk a bit about, you know, the early text's understanding of Paticca Samuppada, comes in a way that really is the model for emptiness. Um, What's occurring in fact, you know, you know, for example, when it said, you know, whoever sees dependent origination sees the Buddha, whoever sees the Buddha sees dependent origination. Nagarjuna goes on and says, you know, dependent origination is dependently originated, therefore empty. Yeah. Um, th- anything that's dependently originated is empty. Um, perhaps we can talk also about the word emptiness. I think it's a very negative term. I think it's an extremely negative term, gives the people a very wrong impression of what the teaching is about. Um, because the word in Pali and Sanskrit, sunyar or sunyata, actually means nothing and everything. You know, so why do we concentrate on the nothing as opposed to the everything? Um, So, yes, I will. I'll talk a little bit about that. And the other part was? Uh, My thought on emptiness was just uh, something you mentioned earlier, that uh, things like inherent Mm self-existence. But is that more a Mahayana thing where they really get into that? Oh, they get into a stride with a vengeance in the Mahayana. And the other question was about karma. Uh, Karma, yes. I will certainly deal with karma. Yeah, that's a really important one. I'll talk about that in relation. It'll come up some point in dependent origination. Because the other word for this, um, sankhara, is karmic action. Yeah, is karmic action. Now, it's interesting. In this case, we always use the Sanskrit as opposed to the Pali, as opposed to kama, which is obviously the Pali in this instance. So I'll just point that out when we're using the word karma. And I would emphasize karma rolling the r a bit because otherwise you end up with sensuality if it's just karma it's sensuality if it's karma then it's action which is literally what the word means Um, i think there's lots of wrong-headedness around the whole notion of karma and what's going on in karma Um, almost ends up even in buddhist circles almost being hindu fatalism yeah, which is not what the Buddha intended at all about it. But that'll come up in independent origination most certainly. Sorry to be talking so much. Yeah. Um do we have any knowledge about the evolution of the Buddha's uh, ideas? Because the conventional view is that he sat under the Bodhi tree and, you know, bingo. Uh, <laughs> he, he, he got the whole works just like that. Yeah. Now, What kind of human being, and he was a human being, mm. gets ideas fully formed like revealed truth. Mm. And so how did his ideas evolve? And, you know, all the works of men and women, of individuals, over time, uh have been revised by subsequent generations. Mm. Yeah? Because, you know, we're all fallible. Mm. And yet the Buddha's ideas are just come as received truth you know, to, to the community, to the Sangha. It's, it's just, you know, that's, that, that's it. I mean, this is uh, almost like revealed truths. Yeah, so. I, th- I think it, I'd, you know, I'd qualify it by saying almost like revealed truths. It's not because, you know, he doesn't ever claim, even within these traditional accounts, he's never claimed that it is revealed truth. He's not claiming to have any revelation from on high about it. He's just claiming to discover something. That's all. Now, I think obviously what you've got, and you get this in a lot of Indian texts, is time contraction. That in a sense, the Bodhi tree experience, whatever that was, and, and... all you can say is, according to the traditional accounts, even according to the Arya Parasana account, is that there is something like a Bodhi tree experience. Now, that doesn't happen out of a vacuum, just like we said this morning, Buddhism doesn't happen out of a vacuum. It happens out of all the causes and conditions that have given rise to that kind of inquiry. And I think what we see or hear as the Bodhi tree experience, I mean, this is my own conjecture, and I do emphasize the conjecture, is that actually occurs over a period of time um, and a a, a period of meditation and probably doesn't occur on one night. Um, That's my own conjecture about it. The words definitely change, there is no doubt about it. The the, the Buddha's conception of what he's doing, um, the way the Sangha is evolving, um, certainly changes from the earliest strata of text that we can tell. The problem with the, the suttas is there's no chronological order to them. It's not as if the compilers, the redactors of the texts actually sat down and said, OK, this is an early sutta, this is a late sutta and put them in some kind of chronological order. They didn't. It's a, and If any of you have ever looked, and as I'm sure probably a lot of you have, who've looked at these texts, they're a bit of a it's all over the place. And if you happen to get two texts that correlate and actually follow on from each other, it's more by accident than by design that they're there. Um, I said, the only um, non-seeming accident seems to be the diger and the majima, which both start off with really difficult texts and then get easier the immediately you get into it. Um, but apart from that I can't see any common way of compiling these things. So it's very difficult to know the actual development of the Buddha's ideas over time. However, that text I mentioned earlier on, Sutanapati, you can certainly see clearer ideas about the development of the Sangha, for example. You know, what I mentioned to you about two monks not travelling together. I mean that's yeah, it has no idea of settled communities at that point. And and one extremely almost funny remark I find in the Vinaya, which also I would recommend people to read if you haven't read the Vinaya or elements of it because it's so revealing about the early Sangha and what was going on and actually just the human capacity to get around rules. (laughs) (laughs) The reason why you end up with 227 rules is the human capacity to try and get around the simplest ones. (laughs) You know, that's the reason for it. And most most of the things that the monks were up to were prosecutable. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's pretty bad stuff that's going on in the Vinaya. Um, but in there, in one time, I mean, there's one very indicative statement I find in the Vinaya when, when the Buddha says to Ananda, he says, Ananda, weren't things better in the old days? <laughs> You know, there's all that sort of kind of retrospect to saying, you know, when it was simpler, when we had less people, when we didn't have these monasteries to run and things like that, it was a lot better. But the development of the Buddha's ideas, I don't see so clearly. There are, as I mentioned earlier on today, there are conflicting passages, contradictory statements, which clearly show uh, a development. But which one follows which, it's very difficult to tell uh, within it. I mean, the capacity for... The bhikkhus to try and remember everything that was said by the Buddha, obviously some of it is going to be misremembered as well, Um, also reflects on the status of some of the things and probably some of the contradictions within um, the text themselves. But uh, unlike, say, the Gospels, where you can look at the Gospels and some people have kind of gone through it and really begun to analyse, well, this probably looks actual, this is probably an interpolation, uh, and so on and so forth, and, and try and work it out chronologically and things like that. You can't do that with this body of material, which is so vast. It's a huge amount of material that you've got in the Pali Canon. Um, So there's no way of telling what's chronological and how those ideas develop. The closest I can say, and this is part of the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing with you, the particular teachings I'm giving you in terms of the early texts, these are the ones I think we can clearly say are probably the ones that the Buddha gave, because he emphasizes them again and again and again and again through these early texts. It's like there are certain themes which come through the text you are asking about in the Yitavutaka and the Udana, Udana earlier on, they don't actually occur that frequently. You know, there's only two instances of them, whereas you know, dependent origination, is mentioned again and again and again. Um, the Khandas is mentioned again and again and again throughout the text. The Tilakana, the three characteristics of existence, are mentioned again and again and again. And so these, I think, just by the frequency of the references... You can see that these are the core teachings that the Buddha really emphasizes. Yeah. I'm, very, I'm appreciating uh, your remarks and uh, I've been studying Buddhism for a number of decades. This has been very helpful, thank you. Mm a lot of clarification. Quick question, or really comment, and then a question. You kicked off today by saying you're kind of stripping away kind of the extraneous religious components Mm. that have been kind of, you know, built up over time. I guess two questions. Why did the Buddha, after he became awakened, I'll use that word, Mm -hmm. continue to pursue a monastic lifestyle? Mm. What was the value of that? And is there any role in monasticism today? That's a good question. Okay, first bit. Why did the Buddha pursue monasticism? Well, it's not monasticism in the sense we understand it. It's this renouncer tradition. I think it's very much enculturated. It's a very, very enculturated. It was, it was literally the sign of breaking away from the conventions of society as it was known in India at that time. And you got to remember. <clears throat> that to pursue any of the things that the buddha is talking about to pursue what you're doing today you know kind of listening to somebody speak about the teachings and thinking about them and pondering about them and to engage in meditation these were luxuries in indian society of that they still are in certain places in india to engage in this um, they're luxuries. You know, they, they come with a degree of wealth and they come with a degree of leisure. You know, so when you find the Buddha addressing, for example, lay people, again, you still see this in contemporary Buddhist cultures, um, the Buddhists or the monastics now will primarily be talking about ethics, you know, about the way that you live your life practically. Because in a sense, that's the only way these people have time to practice. And in ancient India, that would have been the case. So actually entering into a renouncer tradition was a way of creating time. It was a way of freeing yourself up from all of the heavy responsibilities of simply going out and probably farming your land for hours and hours and hours a day to try and produce for your family, produce food for your family. And a majority of it would have been agricultural labouring, you know, apart from obviously some mercantile trade and that, that was going on. So it had been an extremely hard life. Now, it's very interesting in the history of Buddhism, and particularly in colonial countries you know, such as Sri Lanka and Burma, not so much Thailand because it was never a colonial country. But in Sri Lanka and Burma, the first time you get lay people really starting to meditate is actually under colonialism. Now, colonialism had some good points as well as bad points. I mean, it had a lot of bad points, but it had some good points in the sense that it employed a lot of people. And in employing a lot of people and paying them relatively, and I say relatively well, it created a degree of wealth. And then you start to find people meditating as lay practitioners. And the development of a lay practitioner community in Sri Lanka started in the 19th century. Uh, under British rule in, in Sri Lanka. That simply wasn't available to people earlier than that. You know, so I think you have to look at the socio-historical conditions as why monasticism was such an important affair in all of the Buddhist cultures that we know are Buddhist cultures, <laughs> no, now know as Buddhist cultures. They were either subsistence economies, such as China um, and Tibet, um, Korea and Japan were also pretty subsistence economies. So if you really wanted to learn the Dharma practice, even if you wanted, for example, in Tibet, even if you just wanted to learn to read and write, you would have to enter into a monastery. you want to remember these monasteries are educational establishments as well. They weren't just meditation halls and things like that. And so that degree of um, poverty really created monasticism as a powerful institution. Now, when I used to teach... But studies at Bristol University, and I used to teach a two-core, two-semester course on in, um, Tibetan religion. And the first thing I used to get people to read wasn't a book about Tibet, but was on European medieval monasticism, because it's directly comparable. You know, what you find is a feudal system, you know, with the monasteries owning the land, tithes being paid to the monasteries. Um, spiritual, religious welfare being looked after by the monks and so on and so forth. And you find all of these connections. And so that's the reason for monasticism. When that no longer becomes a necessity, then I think it starts to break down. Now, it was very interesting you should ask the last question about you know, is monasticism useful in the Western context now. Um, when the Dalai Lama first visited the West, I think it was in 1971. He came to Europe in 1971 and I asked him a question Um, about the value of monasticism. And he said to me at the time, he said, yes, of course, um, monasticism will have to be an important part of Western culture for Buddhism to put down roots and to establish itself in Western culture. I asked him that question about 10 years ago, and he said, absolutely not. Because he'd obviously seen what had happened and the changes that had taken place. Now, we're in a very unusual situation in Western culture. Here, in that the majority of practitioners, what you're doing here today is only what would take place in a monastery. Ordinary lay people like yourselves in a traditional Buddhist culture would not get this kind of teaching. You know, even going to your retreat centers and your dharma centers around, you would not get the kind of input that you were getting from your resident and local teachers there, you know, getting you to direct you towards texts and teachings and practices and things like that. You would not get that. Uh, anywhere else. We're in a very unusual situation here in that you're getting stuff in a sense that only monastics in the past would have received. And we're also in a very unusual position, again, because I don't know what's back in San Francisco, but you would go into most of, of the major conurbations in Britain and you'll have a shop window onto virtually every form of Buddhism. Yeah. You've got all these different forms. Which ones do you want? You know, do you want Korean or four forms of Tibetan or two forms of Zen? You know, or even difference in Theravada traditions between the Sri Lankan Vihara and the Thai forest monks up the road. You know, you've got all these forms of, of Buddhism. And so in a way, the necessity for monasticism outlined in the first place in traditional cultures is no longer there. But also, I think we've got a very different attitude towards the teaching and the um, apprehension of the teaching, the assimilation of it. And and often people do do that until they find the right form of Buddhism that suits them. They go from tradition to tradition to tradition, perhaps even moving to a form of more secular Buddhism uh, in this interlude. So I think the case for monasticism becomes increasingly less convincing in a Western context. Now, having said that, I think there will always be the case for people who genuinely genuinely want to be um, monastic, celibate, and all of the advantages and disadvantages that monasticism brings to it. But I think as a major way of establishing Buddhism in a Western context, I don't think it's going to be a big player at all anymore within the Western context. In fact, I think the... um, in a sense, the development lies with people like yourselves. This is where the development lies. Now, you can do, either do this properly, and this is my big concern, you can either do this properly by genuinely being educated in these traditions and understanding what they're about and understanding a little bit of what I've tried to share with you today. Or you can ignore that and just go for the traditions. I think there's big dangers in that for for some of the reasons I won't go into, which I outlined this morning. I think there's big dangers with that. I think we have to bring some of our Western educational understanding to the study of Buddhism. So we really begin to understand what's going on and know what is the teaching as much as we can and know what is cultural. Because actually when you look at all these traditional forms of Buddhism, what you find is Heavily, heavily enculturated aspects of Buddhist thought. You know, I always think of Tibetan Buddhism as being one of the most heavily, heavily encultured. It's really difficult to pull the Buddhism out of the culture in that sense. You know, Thai Buddhism, Sri Lankan Buddhism, Korean Buddhism, all of these are heavily encultured. They're influenced by previous indigenous religious traditions and that As we are, in our apprehension of Buddhism in the West, we're influenced by Christian Judaism primarily, you know, um, in apprehending it, and even in the translation of it, you know, as as I was trying to make the point for. But I would still say I think monasticism is is not going to be a major key player in this at all. And I think one of the big things has shown up in the controversy about the role of women in, you know, certainly in Thai forest monasticism. Um, it's a big, you know, seeing a big cultural difference here between you know, the things that women have fought for for so many years and gained in the West and this kind of very, very retrogressive patriarchal situation that you find yourself in with traditional Thai approaches to you know, the role of women and sangha and things like that. So that's another reason that makes me, in a sense, doubt the role of monasticism going to play because there's just so many cultural clashes coming together now. Mm. Yeah. Again, I'm sorry, I always give long answers to short questions. Please <laughs> 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 try and shut me up. <laughs> <laughs> OK, anybody else? Sorry. Uh, taking off on the last question, um, I know a Theravadan Buddhist nun, Thai forest tradition, um, who does believe that, that um, uh, the monasticism uh, is useful, particularly uh, the, all the extra precepts, such as giving up sex, not handling money, and many others, does go further, take you further in t- training the mind toward... Um, toward um, um, you know, letting go and so forth. Any thoughts on that? Having lived both lives, I can see advantages and disadvantages of both. You know? um, to a certain extent, monasticism frees you up of certain things. It doesn't mean you don't have those desires any longer. It just means you can examine them more closely or there's less opportunity if you're trying to live the veneer to immediately want to satisfy the desires that you have, whether they be for sex or money or whatever it might be. There's less desires. But there's also great difficulty because you're living in community all the time. There's lots and lots of difficulties. Um, and actually, the community problems that you find in monasteries are just as great as they are in, in ordinary life, sometimes even more exacerbated because of the close proximity in which everybody's living as well. So you get real hatreds going on. In the, I mean... <laughs> I always find it very indicative, you know, it's not actually within Buddhist monasticism, but it shows the problem of monasticism in general. That St. Benedict, when he actually wrote the rules of his order, actually put in a rule which is monks shouldn't hit each other. <laughs> 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 you know. 228. <laughs> you just got a new one. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, I think it shows you the tensions that often arise in these monastic situations. Um, and I do think that Western monasticism, when it's there, has actually a slightly different flavor to it than living within Eastern monasteries. Yeah, I really do. I, I think that living in Eastern monasteries, it's, or, or nunneries, as the case may be in some traditions, mainly in Chinese tradition. But living in monasteries and nunneries and that, um, it has, a complete, it has a, more of a, a naturalness to it than it does in the Western context. There's not such a great degree of piety. In fact, I always remember, I'll give you a story that happened to me when I was living in the monastery in South India, because most of the big Tibetan monasteries are in South India, because they were resettled there when there were border problems with the Chinese um, in the early 60s. And um, I was actually the only Western monk in this monastery at the time. And occasionally we'd get people coming down from Dharu Masala to come and take teachings from some of the Lamas who were on this particular, in this particular monastery. And <laughs> one of the monks said to me, because i had kind of been assimilated in Tibetan society by that time, and one of the monks said to me, kind of nudged me in the ribs when he saw this Western monk coming along who had come from Dharmasala and said, can you tell me why it is that Western monks look so miserable? <laughs> 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 you know, because often they come with that sort of, I don't know, religious piety that often is there, um, but you don't find, um, certainly in Tibetan monasteries anywhere, there's lots of pranks and things going on. And, kids misbehaving and, and you know pelting each other with pellets and that in the, in the ceremonies <laughs> and all this sort of stuff in the monasteries there so it's kind of there's a naturalness to it and it's not considered to be um, so holy in a certain way so I think there's a certain element that is there within western monasteries which is quite distinct from from the monasteries that you find in the more indigenous cultures anyway (laughs) okay shall we shall we move on um i won't be able to cover what i'm going to start this evening um, all this evening because it's too big a topic but i'll pick it up again tomorrow for those of you going to be here tomorrow but let me just uh, give you some preliminary remarks the The kernel of the Buddha's teaching, I think, really is to be found... I mean, obviously all the things I've spoken about I consider to be important, otherwise I wouldn't be speaking about them. But the real kernel of the Buddha's teaching is to be found in the teaching of Paticca Samupada. Paticca Samupada, which is dependent origination, or conditioned cogenesis, or there's many different ways of translating it. Um, but Dependent Origination does as well. I think I'll, I'll stick with that for, the day, for today. This teaching is probably the most important teaching in the Pali Canon. Yeah, it really is. It's worth, it's worth, if you don't know it, um, memorizing the links in the chain. It's a fantastic tool for meditation. We're beginning to understand. Certainly, by the time we get to a number of the links, you know, from feeling, craving to grasping, we're into the real kernel of the problem that you and I and everybody suffer from. And I use that word deliberately this time. Um, this is how we create the mess, and in understanding how we create the mess, and I don't say when I say create it that we're necessarily always doing it volitionally. We're not deliberately going out there. So there's no sense of moralistic finger-wagging in this at all. It's just saying this is how it naturally starts to unfold with certain things being in place. You know, so sangsara starts to unfold and this feeling of secularity and <clears throat> entrapment starts to occur almost as a natural unfolding of certain conditions being there. You know. It's a difficult teaching, there's no doubt about that. <laughs> again, I can't quote, but I can paraphrase. Um, from the Mahanidana Sutta, this is again the long discourses of the Buddha. This is the, the great teaching on causation, I think it's translated as by Maurice Walsh. But it's, it's the classic, it's the main teaching on dependent origination. Interestingly enough, in this particular version, which is the Mahanidana, the great teaching on the links, in the chain of dependent origination there are only 10 links, not 12. Which tends to make me think that the other two are added in as an afterthought, probably by the tradition, again. Because actually, although they are important, the other two links, they are very much from an Abhidhamma perspective. Uh, I'm going to talk about them uh, because I do think they're important, but I think they probably are afterthoughts which are added in. Um, the Buddha, again, with his primacy on the direct experience of things, is talking about what we can actually experience. So his chain starts not with ignorance. I'll give you a standard translation before glossing it again. Not with ignorance, but he starts with consciousness. This is where he starts. So when we get all of these 12 links which are there, I think this is the tradition working it over trying to put in other elements that he does mention in the teachings but trying to include them into the chain of dependent origination. Now again this is conjecture, I can't prove it but just these slight anomalies when you've got the so-called great teaching on dependent origination yet it doesn't include two of the most important links of the chain. It seems quite strange. So... the Mahanadana sort of starts with what I think is quite amusing but others might differ (laughs) but uh, Ananda comes to the Buddha and he says he says um, Lord the teaching on dependent origination is as clear to me as clear can be and the Buddha goes I can imagine a sharp intake of breath then by the Buddha (laughs) (laughs) And the Buddha goes, Ananda, think again. (laughs) This teaching is profound. Now, when the Buddha ever uses the word profound, which obviously has a Pali correlate for it, but whenever he uses the Pali correlate for it, when he says this word profound, he means it's really difficult. Now, I don't think he's meaning really difficult intellectually. I think he's meaning really difficult experientially. Yeah. Difficulty is not in our intellects. I think particularly for Westerners, and I don't think you know, even problematic for people in his own time, but when he's talking about difficulty, the difficulty is never intellectually. We can almost always grasp intellectually what is going on. It's experientially that we find the difficulty. In a way, there's often a mist- you know, there's kind of non-translation in terms of the actual practicalities of what is going on in this that we, we neglect to see. And in a way, this is why I partly find um, these possible late additions in these other two terms actually useful because the starting place for the whole of the chain of dependent origination is with the 12-link version, which is the standard version that you'll find in Theravada, in most traditions, in fact. The starting place is Avidya. Let me write it up. Avidya, which is as you well know usually translated as ignorance this is the starting place for it this is the fundamental ground on which in a way we walk now remember what I've said earlier on today it's been a long day <laughs> <laughs> is that this word also can mean confusion yeah Confusion is the fundamental ground upon which we walk. And one of these aspects of confusion is also not wanting to know about things. It's just all too difficult. I don't want to know, really. I don't want to know about it experientially. I can sort it out intellectually. In fact, through the history of Buddhism, um, you've got more scholars than you have awakened practitioners. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you've got fantastic scholars but certain tradition was full of them yeah, fantastic scholars um, there was a movement I think that and again this is why I emphasise the balance between study and practice and the history of Buddhist thought and practice in general has been this vacillation between either all meditation and no study or all study and no meditation and that's often what happens, so much so that in Theravadin countries that the um, <clears throat> monasteries were divided up between scholarly monasteries which were called the Gramavasins, which were actually the town-based monks and then you had the Aramvasins, which were the actual forest-based monks. Yeah, the forest-based monks would be the meditators, the city-based monks would be the um, scholars. And that's basically how they divided up into those two kind of sections of society. And so the whole history of Buddhism has been like that. And really it's trying to bring together those two traditions, which I think we really do in the West have an opportunity to do if we don't screw it up, you know, to bring together the you know, the kind of real understanding of what's going on in the teaching, but with the experiential practice. You know, and the understanding actually comes through the experiential practice of it. So this is really, really important, What's what's going on. So when... He's critiquing Ananda and saying, look, Ananda almost represents everybody. And Ananda's the fall guy because he represents everyone. He's kind of the common person. Yeah, he's always making a fool of himself, Ananda, in the text. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Yeah, he's always saying the wrong things or not quite getting it. And, I, and it's a kind of representation of every man. Yeah, this is what we do. We don't quite get it a lot of the time. And so, in relationship to dependent origination, we don't get it in terms of of the experience of what is going on. Now, how do we get it? Well, the experience of what's going on is you get it through your laboratory. And your laboratory is your meditation practice. This is where you really get to see it. This is where you get to experience and experiment with it. And so, the intellectual grasping, which... Yeah, hopefully you'll start to get a little bit of, is just one part of the story. But when you start to see it in practice, this is when it becomes real. So, let's go to the first of the terms. The, actually, well, before I do that, let me just say a word about put up. The word that's being used here notice is the word Dependent. So what we're talking about in the chain of Dependent Origination, the way it's coming across in the early text, is not a description of causality. i make that very clear. It's not A causes B, but A is dependent on B. So they're mutually supporting. And the image that is being used, that the Buddha uses, is of corn you know, When you've kind of harvested corn... And you collect them in bundles and then you stack them by placing them against each other so the weight leans into each and they self-support each other. Yeah. Or using another image you often used to see, particularly old army regiments when they'd be stacking rifles and they'd have all the rifles supporting each other, standing up in little triangles. Well, here you've got mutually supporting aspects. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a series of dependencies not a series of A causes B. So we're not saying that avidya is going to cause sankharas. It's saying that dependent on avidya being present, sankharas will arise. It's very different. Now, don't you see that? And one of the reasons I am emphasising this is because, like I did with the aggregates, with the khandas we want to get away from any sense of linearity. Yeah, in other words, if we draw the circle, I'm sure you've all seen the Tibetan Wheel of Life, yeah, yeah, the Bhava Chakra, or the Wheel of Becoming as it really is, should be known as, you'll find a little bit on the rim which actually is a pictorial description of dependent origination. Now, if you took it literally, you would be looking at that chain and saying, well, this causes this and, this causes this, and this causes this, and this causes this, and this causes this, and this causes this, until we eventually get to old age and death. And then we get back on the wheel again. It's not that simple. It really isn't that simple. Yeah. That is the profundity of what the Buddha is saying. The profundity is actually in the complexity of the interactions that are going on between the different dimensions of the links in the chain how actually it's not just one thing supporting another thing, they're all supporting each other which is actually a really good reason why it's so difficult to unravel our experience even when we have the best motivation that we're not just dealing with one dimension of experience we're dealing with lots and lots of interdependent dimensions of experience, all which mutually support each other In other words, self-reinforcing. And I use that again, deliberately. They reinforce the sense of self. Yeah. So, not causation, but chains of dependencies. Um, Overcoming the sense of linearity. Beginning with Avijja, but not beginning with Avijja. Now, I really want to make it clear, in some other words, the problem just doesn't start with Avijja. A Vija is just part of the chain. It's like the backcloth. Actually, um, you could do this by having all of... You could almost have this with a Vidya at the centre and all the other links spread out in the normal way, seeing that literally as the backdrop. Everything takes place on the backdrop of a vidya, but a Vija is not a first cause. Yeah. It's not a first cause. Where does a Vija come from? The Buddha doesn't say. It's just there. Vidya is just in our experience. Now, confusion rather than ignorance. um, I'm using this term deliberately um, because it shows a fundamental sense of existential confusion. What we're doing, why we're doing it, how we do it. And I often liken this whole sense of, of Vidya, which I think we do actually have an experience of, I mean, I don't know if you feel confused, but I do, you know, about life. Um, I often liken it to being, I don't know, kind of dropped in by parachute into a strange land where you don't actually have a map at all. Um, You wander around fairly futilely in the landscape. You bump into a few locals who are also fairly confused because they don't know the landscape. They only know their own valley where they live in. That is all. Um, so, they can't tell you about what's going on in the other valley. And actually, the landscape is life, and the confused inhabitants are probably your parents. <laughs> you know, because all they're trying to do is give you their confusion. Yeah. This is uh, confusionism. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's a bad time of the day. <laughs> But, no, this is, being serious about this, this is being literally, as I say, dropped into a strange place and not knowing our way around. And actually, although I was joking about this, this is actually often our experience of life. We do our best. We do our best. We often don't mean to be hurtful or malicious or any of those things, but they just arise out of circumstances. They arise actually out of conditions. You know, and they arise out of a fundamental condition of being confused. So how can we know what the right thing to do if, if is, you know, we're confused? <coughs> because the information we've got is fairly confusing. And it's, uh, I kind of joked about it a bit but in saying it's parents, but it's often our societies as well. You know, for example, our societies proffer a, as ways of getting through life which actually exacerbate the problem rather than the helping us to overcome the problem that we experience. So Western materialistic societies often offer out materialism as being the end of all meaning and the goals that we have in life. And when that is seen as failing somehow, then existential depression arises, lack of meaning, boredom, all the sorts of things which I think are rampant, I don't know over here, but they're certainly rampant in European society. these kind of fundamental existential problems that are there. I mean, I was sharing with Tony when I was driving this morning that the World Health Organization says that depression is going to be the second major health problem in the world in five to ten years' time, sort of running a close second to cardiac problems. It shows you, you know, that actually something is happening in our societies which isn't being fulfilled by the kind of dreams that we're offered. So I don't want to kind of... This is, I'm trying to diffuse the sense that it's our fault. Yeah. It's not our fault. Let's make that really, really clear. I don't want to have many, any moralistic sting in this whatsoever. <clears throat> so if we've got that background and actually find it really difficult then often we don't want to know as well as simply not knowing now the actual word "avijja" has that connotation as well it's not that i just don't know i don't want to know yeah. and even if <clears throat> for example somebody like myself or other teachers come along and say look here come on everything absolutely everything is impermanent that part of the view that doesn't let you live with impermanence is actually the bit that doesn't want to know because it's still grasping after some sense of actually it's going to be like this, it's all going to be okay, isn't it? You yeah, know, this is probably about as good as it gets. <laughs> you know, what's actually occurring, but this is actually happening so. This not wanting to know is one of the fundamental blockages to us actually living the teaching. I actually think, and I'll just share this with you, I actually think that none of the teachings are difficult. And you've probably heard them, probably in slightly different ways, because I've taken a slightly different tack today with you. But most of what I've said, apart from historical stuff, you might have heard in many other contexts before. You might have read it a lot of times. Yeah. But our lives don't change that much, do they? They do change, but they don't change as you would think they would dramatically change when suddenly I get the idea that everything is impermanent, things are dukkha and they're not self. And I really begin to understand that. And that's because there's some aspect really fundamentally buried in the psyche very deeply which doesn't want to know. That's the blockage, in a sense, that's stopping us. So what we're doing is literally clearing the path. What we're trying to do is sweep the path of all the debris, all the rubble, all the blockages, all the things that are stopping us as impediments. Now, one of the chief impediments is thinking. (laughs) Too much. Um, And interestingly enough, the word papancha, which is the word I'm sure you must have come across, which is usually... Translated as proliferation, has the sense of it actually has a sense etymologically in Pali, of spreading out. It's thought gone rampant. Um, it actually is, is derived also from a, another Pali term, "papanchti," which actually means to obsess about things. Uh, that word is actually linked to the word "impedimentum." It's etymologically linked the Latin word "impedimentum" and "papancha." That which blocks the path. Yeah. So all of this kind of thinking we engage in, which spreads out and obsesses and proliferates, and you know, as I call it, say, thinking on rampant, um, actually stops us from seeing. It becomes literally an obfuscation on the path. An obfuscation. So that's what we're in fundamentally engaged in clearing. So don't think that vidya is something we're going to absolutely clear up really easily. It's not something that's suddenly going to go away. Um, even by collecting all the Dharma books um, that you could possibly get and putting them on your walls, it's not somehow by osmosis going to kind of transform you overnight. It isn't. This is is what we're working on. This is kind of a long-term project. Now, the sense of avidya is that it's also composite. It's not... Uh, it's not just one thing it's actually composite and it's composed out of something and again this will give you an idea of the Buddha's use of language it's composed out of the asavas now this is a really difficult term to translate Um, I've never really found a satisfactory translation for it at all you can give a sense of its dynamics and that's about it um the word is actually borrowed from Jainism. from Jainism, um, And the word asava means an influx, something coming in. Now, the, the Jains believed that the reason why samsara was occurring was because we engaged in any actions whatsoever. It didn't matter whether they were good or bad. But the soul, the Atman, was weighted down by literally what they called the dust of the influxes, which weighted it, and stopped it from being liberated. So there was things flowing in. Now the Buddha transfers the main meaning of this term to flowing out. So what's keeping us bound is not what's flowing in, but what's flowing out of us. And then we come back to our sense of incontinence again that we had this morning. And what is flowing out of us, and this is one translation, and it's, it's etymologically quite sound is effluent now that effluent itself has a direct context and far part of it is what's called avijasava the effluent of confusion because I just don't like to keep my confusion to myself I like to spread it around (laughs) 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 why keep it to yourself (laughs) Uh, So that's part of what we're spreading around. Now, there are alternative translations. I only mention them because you will see them as you go through the books. One, um, outflows. Sometimes you even see influxes, which is very wrong because they're translating it literally from a kind of giant context into this. Another one is outflows. Cankers is another one. Roy Norman, who I mentioned earlier on, who said that Four Noble Truths is the very worst possible translation, His comment on this was, um, when I heard him speaking once, was he said, the only thing I know that has canker is dog's ears and roses, (laughs) not human beings. So so cankers, I don't think, is a very good translation. But the dynamic you've got uh, that you have to sense is a sense of what is flowing out of us, what is coming out of us. Literally what we can't keep to ourselves. Now there are three, sometimes four, of these aspects, which are the asavas. These are the roots of all unwholesome psychological behaviour. It's that bad <laughs> of all unwholesome psychological behaviour. Uh, and one there's an there's a synonym actually, which is used rather than Buddha, for somebody who is awakened. Uh, An Arahant, or somebody called a Buddha, is usually described as Kinasava, which means somebody who has brought an end to the Asavas, ended the Asavas, literally. So that's the first one, is the Asava of Vidya, the ignorance, the confusion, the delusion that we cannot keep to ourselves, that we spread around, that we keep on pouring out. Because it affects all of our relations with the world. It's not something which is deeply personal. It affects all of our relations with the world. It affects all of our personal relationships too. Deeply linked to this is the term... Well, if you just see these truncated, you'll probably figure out how to join that together, is this word, kamasava. the arsava of sensual desire <coughs> for any form of sensuality now this is in a sense the arsava that deeply craves sensuality yeah. sees it as a, as, as a positive thing always yeah. it's also linked as well to cravings for innovation and new things that you want to experience um, but this is this is not just kind of knowing I've got a craving for a bar of chocolate or something like that this is this is really deep stuff you know this is addiction to sensuality in all of its forms you know whether it's you know the addictions to substance abuse type of addictions addictions to sexuality You know, addictions to got to be in beautiful surroundings, got to have the most lovely things around me, you name it. This is a deep obsession that's really embedded in our psyches in some way. This is obviously going to vary from individual to individual. This is not kind of always manifesting in the same way. Here. Then there is the craving for continued existence. Bhavasava. Now, as we go round the links of dependent origination, you'll find this term occurring again, but in another form, in the craving for existence. Bhavtana, Tanha, which is much, much further around. But this is showing that it's, it's a really deeply buried dimension of the psyche. Now, the craving for existence, I'll say much more about this tomorrow, but the craving for existence isn't literally just the physical craving to continue to exist, which of course we all have, but it's a con- craving for continued existence, say in a traditional um, Indian context, of continuing to be reborn as the same person. It's a it's if you like, it's a deeply linked sense of wanting to be me forever. Yeah? It's a deep grasping after self here, clinging to that sense of self that you may have. However that is, however fractured that might be, there's a deep clinging to that. This clinging is manifested through all sorts of ways. Again, often through desire for innovation and new things. Might be the craving to exist through your children, through your good works, you know, people having good memories of you. All these sorts of ways. It might even come down to the chippings on your tombstone. Yeah. <laughs> It might even come down that far. But it's somehow to go on in some way. Now, the desire for immortality that you see traditionally manifested that was there within Indian religion, you know, in fact, again, the Buddha is playing on this because there's a very famous quote in the Brihadaranyaka which is known as the Gyatri Mantra, which is, from death take me to immortality. Yeah. And you know, then it goes on, take me from light to darkness, but take me to immortality is being the main thing. So that's a pretty big craving <laughs> yeah. to to move from the sense of of you know transience and fragility and everything else to the idea that I want to be forever. Then to compound the problem, <laughs> whoops, I'm losing the thing. <coughs> So, to compound the problem, we also have this one that's often included. Ditasava. Which is the asava of views. Or, as a better translation of dite or diti, is actually opinions. So. This is an unpromising beginning. (laughs) The unpromising beginning is, if you like, of dependent origination, although saying it's not an origin, so please don't take me too literally on this, is this is the situation. The Asiva's composer of EGR are confusion, desire for sensuality, desire for continued existence, and a whole load of opinions. Let's face it, we're just opinionated. Yeah. Now, I use that word deliberately, opinion, because what I want to contrast it with is, and views aren't, isn't an inaccurate translation, it's actually okay. But the reason I want to do that is because I want to contrast opinion with knowledge and insight into the way things are. So we have lots of opinions about the way things are, but actually not much insight into the way things are. Now, that's all a manifestation of the confusion. Yeah. So, what is the chief, in a sense, problem that the Vija is, in a sense, blocking us from? Well, it's actually any direct insight into the three characteristics of existence. Any, you know, because, desire for continued existence. Well, Buddha is saying, actually, is anatta. Anatta. Yeah. The problems that we're having in terms of impermanence, well, I think I'll go and have a good time. (laughs) Let's get out and have a good time. Now, there were characters called Charvakas in the time of the Buddha who literally believed that was the only thing. There was no death, there was no rebirth, there was only having a good time. (laughs) They were nihilists, basically. And then instead of this real knowledge about the way things are, we have lots and lots of opinions about it. Views works quite well in some cases, doesn't it? You know, because you know, what is most conflict about? You know, and I'm thinking here politically and worldwide. Conflict is about views that we hold. Conflicting, contrasting views. Now, all of these are born out of Papancha. So, diti is another, in some senses, something that's deeply embedded in Papancha. It inclines the mind in a certain way. So there's your unpromising beginning. Now, what it's saying is dependent on these, these are the conditioning factors for the arising of sankharas. That word that I used in relationship to, obviously, the five aggregates. That the sankharas arise in dependence on confusion. Yeah. So this is kind of, everything's misplaced here, isn't it? Can you see this? The confusion is actually we're misplacing any search that we might have. Now, in, in many ways, what you can see is that in the early text, what the is trying to really give us a picture of is that, that we're not bad people. You know, again, there's this lack of moralistic finger-wagging a lot of the time. I sometimes see, a lot, sometimes when it does occur in it, as being something's being slipped in. I really do. Sometimes the Pali is different in it. You know, it's this kind of the, When it gets moralistic, it's as if it's become in later in some way, but it's become traditionalized again. Um, because I don't find that so much within the bulk of the text. Because the Buddha appears to be saying that these are outcomes of dealing with the problems of life. And if I'm confused, well, I will go searching for happiness in things that actually don't give me happiness. But I'm still under the delusion or the confusion that they will. And I keep on doing it almost out of the sheer disbelief that it's not actually giving me what I want. <laughs> Does that ever occur to you? I mean, when you engage in a habit, doesn't ever occur to you, I keep on doing this, but I don't want to do it but it's almost, I can't really not believe this is not going to give me what I want. So I'll give it one more go. <laughs> you know, that's really what's occurring here. And Bhavasava, you know, is, well, even better than misery, I know, than not be me. Now, in the later part of the wheel, you're going to find um, the bhava which actually means the desire not to continue. Yeah. The desire to obliterate yourself in some way or another. And that's deeply linked. And then there is, of course, well, I've got to kind of find my way around the world, so I develop my sense of the world by having lots of views and opinions about it. And lots of views and opinions about right and wrong, good and bad, yeah. correct and incorrect, you know all these sorts of things. But coming back to Karmasava, I mean, even the material stuff of the world, which is actually one of the big things that Kamasava devolves on, the Buddha describes in one sutta as being a bit like a dog being thrown a bone. Here's the bone. It doesn't have any um, flesh on it at all. He says it's just smeared with a bit of blood. And the dog keeps chewing the bone again and again and again, searching for nutriment out of it. I a wonderful metaphor for our kind of compulsive behavior. Doing these same things again and again is a bit like chewing the bone, trying to see if we can get the nutriment out of it or the nutrition that we want. Yeah. But we keep on doing it. It's like, it's like chewing gum, isn't it, when it's lost its flavor? <laughs> you can't quite take it out of your mouth, <laughs> you just keep on chewing. You know, And that's really the, the experience of a lot of karmasava. Keep on doing the same stuff again and again and again and again. No wonder we get the sankaras we do.. <clears throat> and the sankharas are deeply embedded habits. That's why one possible translation, or doesn't cover every eventuality of what the word "sankara" means, is habit. You'll find these usually translated as volitional formations. Yeah, volitional formations. Now, in the Tibetan Wheel of Life, or the Wheel of Becoming that I referred to earlier on, these pictorial illustrations show you, if you ever look at it closely, for example, avidya is described usually as either one blind man, but usually actually two, two blind men trying to lead each other. You know, tapping their way through the world. The Sankaras, I've written that up on the board, I don't need to write up like that now. The Sankaras is usually pictorially described as a potter moulding pots, sometimes collapsing them down and remoulding them. Sometimes there's one that's being produced, it looks fairly similar to the one that's being moulded, but it's got a big wonkiness in the top, and it's not quite correct. And so it's like the process of what we're engaged in is moulding and remoulding, often, our habits. Yeah. Our proclivities to behave and think in certain ways. This is very much the creation of the kind of neural pathways that we're engaged in. You know, keep on doing it. You know, it's like bad habits. If you think of a bad habit and do it, or think of something that you don't want to do but do it, and it's really bad, it becomes so much easier to do it the second time, and then the third time, and the fourth time. Fifth time, you've forgotten completely it's a bad habit. Yeah. Probably actually earlier than that. But it becomes so ingrained so quickly yeah. how to do these things. So, Sankaras, we're always setting up Sankaras and operating out of the Sankaras. The Sankaras, I mean, sankaras in a sense, become us. The poet Rilke once said in his Duino Elegies, he said, You know, here is the habit that moved in and didn't leave. (laughs) That's what's happened with a lot of our behaviors. They are deeply, deeply ingrained habits which move in and haven't left us. And that's what we keep on repeating. So there's a compulsion to repeat. And this is what we're doing. So Sankara's actually, to kind of use more contemporary jargon, almost become default options. When the going gets tough, you fall back on your default option. Which is usually the easy way, because I don't have to think about it. I don't actually have to think about this. Even if the end result is further misery or whatever, I don't usually think about it, because better better to know what the outcome is going to be rather than to engage in something new which is difficult and not know what the outcome is going to be. So this is really the way that the Buddha is describing the setting up of the sankharas. That we're always setting up, remoulding and remoulding us. It's actually, the word literally means, in Pali, it comes from a word sankhata, which is formed and forming. So we're always, we're both formed and always forming. So hence the model, I think, of the, the potter is a very good one. Always moulding our lives, always shaping our lives, but often shaping just the same things. You know, it's like the painter, it can only paint one subject. You know, or the potter, it can only one make one model of pot. Yeah, we keep on doing it, and we keep on doing it pretty compulsorily. The... the Other dimension to this is of course that these are narratives. These are also narrative structures, stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves and who we are. Sometimes I don't know if you've noticed this, even when you've had a habit, there was two usually two aspects to actually breaking a habit. Often there's a great feeling of loss, like you somehow lost a bit of yourself. But there's also the feeling of freedom that comes from that. So it's a kind of double-edged thing initially until you become, in a way, more relaxed, more comfortable with the sense of what you've lost. So there's often this deep, deep sense, almost a grief when you've lost a habit, when it's gone. It's a bit of me, it's gone. (laughs) It isn't, it's just a habit. This This is what we're dealing with. And these are sankaras, Now, I'm going to say a bit more about them tomorrow because they're really, really important, although they're not in the list that's given in the Mahanidana Sutta. Um, Because these are the two factors which are going to influence what we, in a sense, are conscious of this moment in time. Now, I put it in very crude contemporary terms earlier on. We're conscious of our stuff. Well, our stuff is our sankharas and our confusion a lot of the time. Now, I don't want to paint again a too bleak a picture because actually there are moments when we break out of all of this. But this is kind of like the dominant framework for most of our experience. So this is describing samsaric experience. And these two are literally the roots of samsaric experience. When we're embedded in these, we experience unpleasantness. Unwholesomeness, something not being quite right, a sense of lack. Yeah. Most of um, what the Buddha is dealing with, and here's another thing, and perhaps I'll finish the day on this comment, and then I'll open it and see if just there's any few questions to finish off with. What the Buddha is dealing with is really the pathology of desire. This is really what he's getting us to try and understand is the pathology of desire. This is why this term will occur in endless lists. You know, um, Actually, Buddhist lists are a mon- wonderful recycling mechanism. <laughs> you get the same terms recycled again and again and again in different permutations uh, to make different points about the psyche and the way that the psyche is functioning here. Uh, kamaraga, Kamasava kamma tanha, all these different terms you get where kamma is involved, um, is this kind of recycling of this desire that we have, that we're deeply, deeply enmeshed into. And this is, if you want to call it a philosophy, the desire is linked to a philosophy of lack. It's always something that we feel we're lacking. And it's almost as if we can somehow fill ourselves up with something which will then make us feel fulfilled literally here so it's about the elimination of this pathology of desire which is another dimension of these early teachings which I don't feel it's there in the traditions but it's not so much stressed it's understanding that pathology and then about how to eliminate that pathology and I do deliberately call it a pathology Okay, so we we'll see if there's any questions to finish off the day. <laughs> um, since you mentioned that dependent origination is a very profound teaching and difficult from um, an experiential perspective, mm-hmm. will you also speak about how we can begin to kind of break down the links and actually practice and see for ourselves you know, mm-hmm. how it really does manifest I think the quick answer to that is yes. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, I'll talk about that tomorrow because there are particular links in the chain which are more susceptible to intervention, being able to see it. And this becomes a real practice. This is what we're doing in our practice, beginning to see this in operation as it goes. Because actually in ordinary life, we have to... I gave you the quick answer, now I'm giving you the long answer. Um, But... Now, in ordinary life, this stuff is going on so quickly. We really, really, I mean, I don't often, I don't know about you, but I don't often see the desire for a piece of chocolate arising in my mind. I find myself eating a piece of chocolate. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's not as kind of, oh, yes, I see it, yes, desire, desire. <laughs> it's, it's a very quick process. So what we're actually engaged in is beginning to slow down the process beginning to see a lot more clearly and then when we begin to see more clearly we know when we can intervene and there are particular points and I'll talk about it tomorrow (laughs) (laughs) If I knew what it was (laughs) I'm sure we must have a UK equivalent (laughs) Okay, as I exhausted you Tomorrow, at 1 o'clock, we'll be, we'll be here for a continuation. Um, let me ask if it would be really helpful, since tomorrow morning is the normal Sunday morning um, program here, if, if a few of us can stay and help put the chairs back. And,